Amen and amen. Thank you, thank you. If you have a Bible this morning, you can turn to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. Feel free to go grab one if you need to grab one. Uh, if you need to borrow it, that's perfectly fine with us. If you, um, if you need to just take it with you because you, have, uh, you don't have a Bible that you can read and understand, feel free to uh, take it with you. We're also on the Bible app. If you want to um, open that app right now, you can find our live event by location or off of one of our social media sites. And um, uh, you can click on that and track along with the scriptures and sermon notes uh, and everything else. Uh, I will say we're going to, just as a fair warning, we're going to read a good portion of scripture today. Acts chapter 7 is a long chapter, okay? So we're going to read a bunch of it. Um, not only are we going to engage content, but also we're going to talk about how the thing unfolds. And so both of those things are coming. Uh, but the sermon title for today is um, Telling True Stories in an Age of Outrage. Has anybody noticed that we live in an age of outrage? Anybody? Notice this. Um, you see it in politics, right, where uh, one person, be they, you know, donkey or elephant, they say one thing and then the other side, like, Rawr! I can't believe you'd say that. And then they respond and what else? Rawr! You know, and then the other side says something, Rawr! and it just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, such that civil discourse has long gone, right? We don't need to disengage from that. We need to stay engaged for the glory of God and need to do it in a different way than is happening right now. Maybe politics in your thing, maybe you find it on the internet. There's no outrage on the internet, right? Nothing. You, you, you put something up on whatever your favorite social media site is and somewhere along the way, about four comments down, somebody has taken offense to what you have said and all of a sudden the keyboard is on fire as they're responding. <laughs> you know, just ripping it up. And you're like, what just happened here? I was just making comment that the flowers were nice out front. Not that you had, I mean, you just kind of go with it and you're like, what is going on? Uh, 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 maybe you don't see it on social media as much. Um, uh, uh, one of the places it shows up is in traffic. Anybody traffic? Out, days of outrage and traffic, especially between like 528 and 517 right now. That's a great place to be driving in the world. Uh, this happened a couple of months ago um, to me. Uh, it was uh, one of those odd things we had, um, we, I think we were headed to soccer practice, but uh, uh, headed up the Gulf Freeway. We had just turned left, getting on the interstate. It was one of those things where there's about 12 cars that are trying to get on. You know, it's 5.15, 5.30, so it's kind of stacked out there as it is. And there's about 12 cars trying to get on. And the person on the front of the line has forgotten which is the gas and which is the brake, you know. So you're like, you're going to get us killed 20 miles an hour on the entrance ramp. Like, you've got to go. And so we're all kind of stacked up behind. And, and uh, I'm coming to the point where uh, the, 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 the entrance ramp, you know, kind of peels off of the, of the feeder road. And so they've got the concrete wall and the barrels and stuff. And this little silver hot rod comes zipping up beside me. And sticks its nose right about my door. Like, I mean, on the right side of the passenger door. And so I'm driving, you know, 15 miles an hour or whatever, looking, going, what's going on here? You know, I didn't know that you were so important that you're, you know, you demanded a spot or whatever. So I'm driving, looking, driving, looking, going, uh, every guy in here is, I ain't letting you in, man. So I'm just driving. <laughs> That's not very Christian, is it? I'm the imperfect pastor, Okay. But I just, I'm like, no, you ain't getting it. So I just kind of putter along right on the bumper of the Ford truck in front of me. And little silver thing, he gets all excited and he keeps inching closer and inching closer. And I'm just like, you ain't getting in, all right? And so as I just very calmly, because I had kids in the car, there were no, you know, uh, waves exchanged or anything like that. I just was 
just driving. And so I just drove, and, and then he finally slides in, figured it out, he's not going to win, slides in behind me, and then we're on that lane, and, and I'm going to get over, and well, he zips around me and gets up, and he's looking at me now, like, Arr. I'm like, okay, man, all right, you win, it's fine, I'm just driving, I'm going to soccer, thank you, you know, traffic. Maybe you don't see it at traffic. Maybe your place is Little League games. Kids sports, anybody? Video came out, I think it was this past week, at a softball game where there were 20 parents involved in a, what looked like a, a, a rugby scrum. I'm not sure what was happening, but there were 20 parents off field having a knockdown, drag out, kick, punch, throw, and I'm like, it, they were from Alabama, so I'm like, I guess they call that Saturday or something. I'm not sure, but like, there was this moment. I'm like, what is going on? Outrage. We live in a day of outrage. And whenever outrage happens and you feed, you meet outrage with outrage, it's pathetic. It's popular, but it's pathetic. And when it, 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 it offers, when you meet it with outrage, you meet outrage with outrage, you, you hear no perspectives, you hear no inf new information, um, there's no kingdom fruit that comes from it. What can we do? And the answer, I think, is to tell true stories. This is, this is Stephen. And so today we get to pick up the story of Stephen and, and uh, kind of work our, way, work our way through this. Now, Stephen, yeah, I'll just give, give away the punchline here. Um, he is the first martyr in the church. So it doesn't end uniquely well for him on that front. Um, and, and listen, outrage will consistently use the law and misuse the law if they can't win the debate. Stephen basically dies, as one commentator said, I studied this week, one he basically dies at the hands of a lynch mob. So let's not pretend that we're dealing with something light and airy here. We're dealing with outrage. And that can become pretty ugly pretty fast. How do we deal with it then? I think um, we got some insight here from Stephen. Here we go. Uh, we're actually going to start in Acts chapter 6. Verse 12, and then we'll catch up, okay? <clears throat> and they stirred up these, these people. They, Stephen found himself in front of the scribes and, and Pharisees again. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. The people in the early church, often when they testified to Jesus, found themselves before the authority. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Again, misusing things. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, um, and will change the customs that Moses delivered us, will pervert the law. Law and temple, law and temple. Don't forget that, okay? Verse 15, and gazing in him, all who said in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, when you and I hear that, we think of some Hallmark card. There's Stephen. I'm not so sure that's it. I think there was something about his countenance, though, that was inviting and kind of drawing people in. And that's where I start. And before we talk about what Stephen said, let's talk about how he said it. First thing is that when you and I tell true stories in, in the day of outrage, in this age of outrage, uh, we would be winsome in doing so. Winsome may not be a word that you use this week, but I pray that it would be true of us that winsome defined like this, uh, that we win with charm. Not fake. No, 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 no. But, but there's a sense of, of fun. We, we, we take things that are serious seriously, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. 
we would be winsome about this. I don't know if you saw this this week. It kind of blew up the internet, I think. Um, uh, but it, uh, th- this, this fellow showed up in front of the MTV um, uh, Generation. He received the MTV Generation Awards. This guy, anybody? All you teenagers? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you watching at home, there's a picture of Chris Pratt on the screen and it just popped up and said it was me 15 years ago, which is patently false. I was way better looking 15 years ago. Kids these days. Here's what he said in front of the MTV crowd. I won't read it all, um, but he was given the Generation Award and he said, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you nine rules from Chris Pratt, Generation Award winner. Number one, breathe. If you don't, you'll suffocate. Fair enough. Number two, you have a soul. Be careful with it. Number three, don't be a turd. If you're strong, he says, be a protector. And if you're smart, be a humble influencer. Strength and intelligence can be weapons. Don't wield them against the weak. That makes you a bully. Be bigger than that. All right. Uh, number four, when you're, giving a do- when you're giving, when giving a dog medicine, put the medicine in a little piece of hamburger and they won't even know that they're eating medicine. That sounds reasonable to me. Number five, it uh, doesn't matter what it is, earn it. Be of service because it feels good and it's good for your soul. Number six, God is real. He loves you. He wants the best for you. You should believe that. I do. Number seven, I won't read all of it, but he talks about how to go to the bathroom at a party. You think I'm kidding. Uh, Just look it up later. Number eight, learn to pray. It's easy and it's so good for your soul. Number nine, nobody's perfect. People are going to tell you you're perfect just the way that you are. You're not. You're imperfect. You always will be. But there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift, like the freedom we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with someone else's blood. Don't forget it, and don't take it for granted. Nine rules from Chris Pratt. Mic drop. Walk off the stage. Uh, What was he doing? Being winsome. If he had gotten up in front of MTV and said, well, I'd like to tell you today about... That would never have flown. Instead, he talks about somewhere about feeding your dog medicine, going to the bathroom and uh, um, breathing and not being a turd. All of those things are true in the middle of all of these truth bombs he was lobbing out. Be winsome. The face of an angel, right? People are used to having people uh, meet outrage with outrage. When you meet outrage with outrage, face of an angel is not your response, right? Instead, be winsome. Secondly, start where they are. Forgive me, uh, this, this part didn't, I didn't, when the slides came together, I didn't get the whole thing up there, but it's supposed to say start where they are. Verse 7, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? Is this right, Stephen? You start you start where they are because um, when you are starting, when you're starting this conversation, when you're starting to tell true stories, not only do you do it with this kind of winsome approach, this winning with charm, but also you, wherever they are, you start, you get engaged with them. Is, are these things so? And Stephen starts right there. Yes, these things are so. Um, if, if the person you're talking to has a favorite topic, guess what? Start with that. If the person you're talking to is sitting over there hurt, start with that. If they're angry about it, start with that. 
and then tell true stories from there. Start where they are. That's what it's supposed to say. Third, and this is where we'll get into the, the content here. And this, those first two really are about how to approach things. Uh, this third part is, is what you actually say. And I would just, I would say it this way. When you go to tell true stories, tell the truest story. What I mean by that is that you can speak to what God has done as well as what he is doing. And that's what Stephen does. Remember, these folks were wrapped up around the law Moses and the land that went along with that and the temple. Those were the things that they kind of were all wrapped up in. And we're going to read a lot of scripture here, okay? So let's hang in there with me. Verse 2. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, he said to him, go from your land. Go out from your land and, and your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, God said. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac, excuse me, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of the 12 patriarchs. Verse nine, and the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Anybody with me on that? God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan um, and great affliction, um, and our fathers could find no food. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family came, uh, became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Just pause right there. He, he just sum summarized all of Genesis. 15 verses to summarize Genesis, that's what he did. Why? Because he started where they were. He started where they were. Are these things so? Aren't you, Stephen, concerned about the land and the temple and the law? I'm starting where you are. There's Genesis right there. He keeps going, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people, Stephen, still honking this sermon off, okay? The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. <clears throat> excuse me, and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men... Your brothers, why do you wrong each other? 
But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And now when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is what? What's it say? Holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Pause again right there. He's basically summarizing the first few chapters of Exodus. He's going to get through the rest here in a second. But he's summarizing uh, the book of it. And, and so here's the thing. Why is Stephen doing that? Because he's starting where they are. What are they concerned with? They're concerned with the law and they're concerned with the land and they're concerned with the temple. Those three things, law, land, temple, law, land, temple. And so he's using Moses as the representative of the law, right? And he's saying, hey, This Moses, who represents the law that you deem so important, met God in a land. But where was the land? It was in Midian, not Canaan. It was in some foreign land, not the promised land. And when God met him, what happened? It was holy ground. Now, if you're talking to religious folks, they get sometimes very concerned about places and about rules, those kind of things. True. True. Places are important, yes, but they're not ultimate. Rules, they're good to follow, but they are not ultimate. Stephen is using this story. where He starts where they are, and he's using this truest story of how God has moved to say, hey, listen, you're so concerned about the land, but God met Moses in a foreign land. And wherever he met Moses, what was it called? Holy ground. Now, in our culture, truth be known, we wouldn't necessarily call this particular building right here holy ground. Right? We wouldn't say, like, this is the temple of the Lord. Right? We wouldn't necessarily call it that. We're perfectly comfortable, my guess, is that most of us in here are perfectly comfortable saying, hey, God can meet me in the car. God can meet me at my office. God can do all those things. He's worked that way before. He's worked that way now. I, th- I think that's absolutely true. We don't overemphasize a place. I think the thing that we as a culture need to work on, we as a church family even need to work on is this. Don't forget that whenever God does meet you, what did he call it? Holy ground. We would consider those places, consider those moments, holy, holy moments on holy ground. We, we wouldn't lose the awe because God is everywhere and can meet us anywhere. We wouldn't lose the awe of actually encountering that God. Folks that Stephen was talking to were concerned about the land and the temple and the law. You and I are concerned about maybe meeting God elsewhere, but let's not forget that when we meet him, it's holy ground. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So here's a little seedling of what's coming, okay? God sent Moses as a ruler and redeemer who was ultimately rejected. A ruler and redeemer who was ultimately rejected. One more time, a ruler and a redeemer who was ultimately rejected. Is this going to come back, you think? Has God told that story before? Not just Moses, but also somebody else who followed Moses. 
We'll see it in just a second. Verse 36. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness um, with uh, the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. There's that rejection again. Um, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us, uh, who led us out from the e land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, were rejoicing in the work of their own hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of Prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up, you took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship. I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern um, that he had seen. Um, that, that's the summary of Exodus, verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua. When they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So now we've gone Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. We've got the first 12 books of the Bible in summary here. Verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, what's Stephen doing? One more time. He's telling the truest story. We don't have to make up a story. We've seen God move, Stephen says. And we know that he's at work right now. You think that it's the land that's the issue. No, no. God met Moses in a foreign land, and it was holy ground. Like The land's not the issue. You think it's the law? You've been rejecting the law since it got started. You think it's the temple? Do you really think the God of the universe can dwell in the temple? That's how he's moved through this. Okay? He's telling the truest story because, listen, he wants for them, and he wants for us, to focus on the person not the things that might distract us from focusing on the person. He wants us to lock in. The truest story is not about land. It's not about law. It's not about temple. The truest story that's being told is about the person of, excuse me, the person of God as he's revealed himself in those things. And so he wants us to hear this truest story. He knew, Stephen knew the temptation was to reject God in order to protect power. A ruler and redeemer was sent who was ultimately rejected. Why? Because they wanted to keep control. So now God has sent Jesus, a ruler and redeemer, who will ultimately be rejected. Tell the truest story. When you get into a conversation, church family, tell the things that God has done. And tell the things that God is doing. Tell that truest story. Okay, fourthly, when you tell stories in the days, in this age of outrage, you need to anticipate the confrontation. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, it was a friendly cup of coffee until that moment right there, right? 
Um, you have to anticipate that moment of confrontation because when we tell true stories in days of outrage and there's outrage kind of flowing, you have to know that there's a moment when you're telling the true stories of how God's worked and how he is at work, there will be a moment where you have to look at somebody and say, hey, listen, and this is where it comes down for you and where it comes down for me. When you share the ways that God has worked in your life, people will say, oh, no, no, this is where it comes down for you and where it comes down for me. And so you have to anticipate the confrontation. Can I just pause here and say pastorally, this is an important point. If the person is across the table from you, barely holding on to their coffee, trembling as they're trying to drink it, right? Because they're so busted up by their own brokenness and the stuff that God has uh, let happen in their lives because of their sin. And they know that they've made a hash out of their lives and just, maybe you don't lead with, you stiff-necked person, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. When you anticipate the confrontation, you can see what's going on in that moment, and you don't necessarily have to lead with your swinging right hook to try to land it on their jaw. I'm saying that if there's brokenness on the other side of the table, pastorally, confrontation can look a little different than that. There can be some compassion that gets extended across the table. You still got to deal with the issues at hand, but maybe you just extend compassion. If, however... Some of you have been in conversations like this. I know I have been in conversations like this. If, however, across the table from you is a person chewing on chips and salsa, and they're, they're looking at you going, yeah, so? I understand, but, I mean, it's still what I choose to do. Then, then in that moment, the more stubborn they are, the more straight talk is needed. And, and that's, that's what Stephen was doing. He's not being unkind. He's just... Talking straight. That's when you roll out. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, no good. Maybe you update the language just slightly. But, I mean, you get the idea. Church family, I'm telling you this because we as a church, uh, in in a culture that is broken and desperately needs clear eyed, lit heart witnesses, there will be times when you're sitting across from somebody, they're eating chips and salsa, and they're saying, I understand what you're saying, I just don't care. Hey man, you cannot, you cannot, um, I, I understand that you feel like you want this other person, but I want to remind you that you put a ring on this person's hand. You can't do that. Well, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like, you're starting an avalanche here, and you think it's going to be, you are going to get swept up in it, and there will be carnage beneath you. You need to know that. Well, I mean, it's just me and my computer screen. I don't know what the big deal. No, no, no. It's a big deal. It is a big, well, no, you can't tell me. Listen to me. There are things that get reprogrammed in your brain when you live on that kind of stimulation and titillation that then you can't translate into a 3D living human because you've so engaged with the 2D in front of you. There are times when you've got to look it square in the eye and shoot them straight. And there'll be times when it blows back, yes and yes and yes. It blew back on Stephen. But if you go in having anticipated the confrontation, you'll at least know that it was coming. One more time. If they're sitting across there, they've gone through three and a half boxes of Kleenex, you don't need to come from the top rope, okay? I mean, like, that's not the thing. They got enough people who beat them down. 
There are times, though, church family, where you and I, because of the witness that we have and the, the clarity that God's word demands, we will have to look somebody in the eyes and go, you are headed down a path. There is a way, to quote the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it is death. It may be the death of a relationship. It may be the death of your soul, but nonetheless, it is death. You just got to anticipate that. To tell true stories, you've got to be ready for that moment. L- lastly, you've got to be willing to pay the price in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. There's their outrage again. And they ground their teeth at him. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it can't be good. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Can we just put a parenthesis for just one second? Every other time we see Jesus at the right hand of God, what is his position? He is seated at the right hand of God. Here in this moment, I don't want to put a lot of stock in this because I don't know that I'm right. But here in this moment, when there is a faithful witness that's just about to cost this guy his life, it seems like Jesus gets out of his seat to say, yeah, all of you guys are against him, but I'm for him. I simply note that because some of you can take courage because you're going to have to have a difficult conversation this week. And the courage that you display in that moment as you, as you um, step into that, as you walk through that door. If God were to peel back the heavens, I just wonder if Jesus would stand up and go, that's my girl right there. Go get him. That's my boy talking. That's my boy. Jesus stands. That's awesome to me. Verse 57. But they cried out, after he said this, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, He fell asleep. If you're going to tell true stories, you also have to be willing to pay the price. I say that to say this, church family. I know it is not a small thing that Jesus is asking. It is not light. It is not easy. But he's still asking. To step up and say, I'm going to be a faithful witness to what God has done, what he is doing. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to tell the story of God. There will be times when the blowback is so significant, the outrage that overwhelms you is so significant that you're like, I'm, this is, this is, I'm going down. This is that moment right now. It's not a small thing that Jesus is asking, but he is asking. Stephen in verse 60 physically expired. But he died long before then when he gave his life to Jesus. Because if we we can deal with that right there, then the rest of it is going to be all right. His body quit working, but he had died long before then. When he had given his life to Christ, when he had responded to, you want to follow me? Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Follow me. What is a profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's no small thing 
but he is asking. He is. And I just say that to say he's worth it. Like he's worth it. Church family, if you step out and you get blowback, just know that Jesus is worth it. You, you, you go to tell the story and all the stuff comes flooding back. He's worth it. He's worth it. I promise you he's worth it. Be willing to pay the price. The second part of that, though, is that we never know how God's at work in the background. As we pay the price, as we experience this, you know, all the stuff that goes along with it, we never know how God's at work in the background. Did you, don't skip over this in verse 58. They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named what? Saul. Now, a chapter later, chapter 9, God's going to knock that same Saul off of his horse on the road to Damascus. And he's going to change the world through him because Saul becomes Paul. We never know how God is at work in the background. When we pay the price, we never know how he is at work in the background. I'll just give you this. Out of Southeast Asia, this is reported last week um, through the uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. One of our missionaries with one of, was with one of our national partners named Ahmad. Um, it looked like it was about to rain, and so uh, Ahmad asked our missionary if he could borrow an old shirt. Hey, can I have an old shirt? Uh, to wear, because he was going to uh, ride his motorcycle through town, and he didn't want his new jacket to get wet. He rolled up his jacket, stuck it in his backpack, and our missionary grabbed this big white T-shirt and let Ahmad put it on. Well, later that day, Ahmad was wearing that white shirt as he's running through town, and it started raining. So he pulled his motorcycle over under an awning to just stop and uh, let it, uh, you know, pass by or whatever. Uh, the owners of a nearby house stuck their head out, saw a guy, as is their custom in the culture, uh, they invited him in for tea. So he went in and he thought to himself, Ahmad did, uh, well, I might as well share the gospel while I'm here, which, I mean, let's be those kind of people. Uh, hey, I'm here drinking tea. I might as well share the gospel. Um, then he asked the couple, do you believe this and do you want to be baptized? And their immediate answer was yes kind of took Ahmad off guard. Do, do you, so he asked, do you really understand what you're doing? You will probably be shunned by your family for this, or maybe even worse. Are you sure? Yes. I don't think you understand. Oh, I don't think you understand. The guy says back to him, you don't understand. I've had several dreams over the last three nights, and in each dream, a man wearing white told me, that he had the way to salvation for me and my family. Last night, that man appeared to me again and told me another man dressed in white would come to my home the next day and share the way of salvation. When we saw you standing outside, we knew we needed to invite you in and hear whatever you had to say to us. You never know how God is at work in the background. White t-shirt, small price to pay. A ride through the rain, small price to pay. And God changed this family's life. Stephen lays down his life. And God uses that to wreck Saul so that he becomes Paul, so that God changes the world through him. A small price to pay. Where does that leave you and me? I, this, is, this is the moment, I think. Is that you, you, you know, take an inventory of your life 
and say, God, is there a spot in my life or spots, plural, that I'm not all in, where I haven't pushed all of my chips and said, hey, yes to you. I'm just, I'm leaning in and saying yes to you. And maybe that looks like I repent of this thing or that thing. I repent of my outrage. And I get on there and I just, maybe it looks like, God, give me courage to step through the doors that you provide, whatever it may be. I just wonder if we would take a moment, sit before the Lord and ask, God, is there a place where I'm not all in? And then what he might say to us about that. Let's pray together.